forgive the plot spoiler, but Saul of Israel is a terrible king. He's so bad that it's a wonder that the greybeards and control of Israel don't pull the plug on the whole monarchy project once and for all, writing it off as a project that went horribly wrong. As Israel's first monarch, Saul consistently shortchanges both his people and God, lets his personal vendettas cloud his judgement and often appears to lose control of his mind. Yet things start off promisingly as Saul kicks off his reign with a stunning victory over a neighbouring kingdom. It's what happens next that begins the king's slow yet catastrophic fall from grace. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 64, Fatal Honey. Bible fans. It's a pleasure to have you with us, especially if you've stuck with us throughout the whole of the Bible from the beginning of Genesis. If you're new, you're also very welcome. This is where we go through the Bible around 20 minutes at a time, with me loosely running through the plot and explaining anything that needs explaining. It's not in any way worshipful or intended as a Bible study. This is the Bible minus the religion. So, assuming that that's what the world needs right now, I'm going to plough on through the first book of Samuel. The ancient Israelites have been a little bit needy and have begged for a king. And they've got a king, but it's not really the king that they wanted or needed. Saul is a pretty useless king. We're going to find out more about him in a minute. Before I go on, apologies if you hear any seagull sounds. I'm actually staying with my mum, who, as you might guess, lives by the seaside and doesn't have a soundproof recording studio in her flat. How selfish. At the time that Saul is king, the neighbouring Ammonites are led by a king called Nahash, who besieges the Transjordanian city of Jabesh. Those of you who've not been following these podcasts religiously might not know that the Transjordan is the area to the east of the River Jordan, where some of the 12 tribes of Israel settle. Ancient warfare depends on surrounding a city and starving it into submission, a manoeuvre which has survived into modern day battle tactics. At its most simple, a siege involves one army attempting to capture a city or other stronghold by placing a ring of soldiers and military weaponry all around it. The Ammonite siege of Jabesh is pretty typical. Jabesh will have been fortified with ditches and towers as sieges are a relatively common ancient Near Eastern battle tactic. The city would have taken advantage of natural defensive features such as valleys or hills, no doubt the reason it was established here in the first place. Assuming that there are enough food, supplies and weapons in a city, there is a reasonable chance of a successful defence. Sieges are expensive and time-consuming for attacking armies who can't hang around forever and who are vulnerable to aerial strikes from towers. Raining arrows and boiling oil damage morale as well as troops, and siege warfare doesn't always succeed. From an attacking point of view, there are advantages. Troops and supplies can be easily replenished, and the larger a siege army, the more intimidating it is. As well as basic ladders, ancient siege weaponry included battering rams and wheeled towers from which arrows could be fired. 
Some sieges involved earthworks that surrounded a city, prevented the besieged population from escaping, and upon which towers could be built, a tactic known as circumvallation. During the siege of Masada in AD 73-74, thousands of tonnes of earth were moved by Jewish prisoners to create a siege ramp for the Roman army to march up and into the fortified city. Dirty tricks were commonplace. Some siege armies threw sick animals over a city's wall in an attempt to spread disease, an early example of biological warfare. Sieges often ended quickly as neither side wanted the expense or pain of a drawn-out confrontation. Defenders were sometimes offered reasonable terms for handing over the control of their city and sometimes they were betrayed by someone on the inside who would open a city gate before a siege could properly get dug in. Back in Jabesh, the inhabitants of the city are desperate for a way out and beg the king of Nahash to make a treaty with them. Knowing that he has the upper hand, the king allows the people of Jabesh their freedom on the condition that he gouges out the right eye of every one of them. Even though this kind of mutilation is believed to bring disgrace on Israel, it is definitely better than being starved to death in a siege. Still, in ancient warfare, soldiers fight behind shields with only their right eyes exposed. Gouging out his right eye means that a man will be useless in battle. However, the people ask for seven days grace before they agree to be partially blinded. When a messenger reaches Saul's hometown of Gibeah, the locals are so moved by the news that they begin weeping. Saul has yet to be officially crowned and arrives fresh from working in the fields and when he sees everyone crying and hears what has happened, he is furious. He slaughters two oxen, cuts them into pieces and sends them across Israel with a clear message. This is what will happen to anyone who refuses to fight Nahash alongside Saul and Samuel. As publicity campaigns go, it's an effective one and Saul is able to raise an army of over 300,000 men. News reaches Jabesh that Saul and Samuel are on their way to rescue them and is met with utter elation. The besieged locals tell their enemy that they will be surrendering the following day, after which Nahash can do whatever he likes to them. The next day, Saul's army utterly destroys the Ammonite threat. If there were any doubt before that Saul was the right choice for king, it has vanished. Armed and victorious, the Israelites want to kill all those who doubted this, but Samuel appeals for calm. God has rescued Israel, he says, before inviting everyone to Gilgal, where Saul is officially crowned with great celebration. The battle marks the high point in Saul's reign, standing alongside Samuel while fighting for God. It's all downhill from here but at least he can console himself that his reign wasn't entirely bad. By now, Samuel is a very old man and he needs his people to enter into the next phase of their history with their eyes open. Possibly at another gathering in Mizpah, he asks Israel's tribal chieftains if he has ever sold them short or let them down in any way while he has been their leader. The answer is a resounding no. Samuel's reign has been unimpeachable and he uses events in Israel's history to reassure them that God is at work in their new monarchy. 
He tells them that God chose Moses and Aaron who led his people out of Egypt and settled them here in Canaan. It is here that people forgot all about God, so to punish them, he allowed them to be overrun by enemy nations. Now, in very real danger, the people apologised to God for worshipping pagan gods instead of him, and he sent judges like Gideon, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel himself to rescue them and keep them and their country safe. It's interesting how he credits Barak for Israel's victory against Sisera when the book of Judges goes out of its way to describe Deborah's leadership in the battle. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews does the same, and it might be just simple sexism, or that Barak is an example of a flawed human who God still uses anyway. Samuel attributes the people's request for a king to the threat from neighbouring Ammon and warns them that the monarchy will only thrive if people continue to put their faith in God and follow his instructions. If they choose to sing to their own tune instead, he promises that they will go down the same sinkhole as their ancestors. To demonstrate his own disapproval of the monarchy, Samuel calls for a sign, an out-of-season thunderstorm which leaves the people awestruck and in no doubt as to who is really in control of their nation. The people are now worried that asking for a king has simply added to a long list of sins that make God angry with them. Their leader reassures them that all they have to do is keep close to God and not worship idols which are powerless to rescue them. He promises to pray for them regardless of his own views about the monarchy but warns that any godless behaviour will end in disaster, both for them and their king. The age of the judges is officially over. Some time must have passed since Saul became Israel's king. The book reports that his son Jonathan recently attacked a Philistine stronghold, so for him to do this he must be an adult, putting Saul at somewhere around 40 years old. News of Jonathan's victory is broadcast around Israel, and the response is less than euphoric. The mood in the nation appears to be to let sleeping giants lie. Now, Israel has needlessly provoked the Philistines, and repercussions seem inevitable. Sensing this, Saul summons the entire nation for an assembly at Gilgal, the place where he is due to next meet Samuel. Why Saul brings everyone together is uncertain, and it may be that he only recalls the men from his army who he allowed to go back home. Often in the Old Testament, meetings involving all Israel simply means a gathering of tribal heads. Sure enough, the Philistines gather with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers whose number readers are told is greater than the grains of sand on the seashore. Philistine chariots are made from iron and are pulled by two horses, creating a moving platform for two or three soldiers. Saul's men are no match for this kind of firepower, and when Israel's more ragtag army sees the vast force ahead of it, its soldiers begin to scatter, either running for the hills or hiding wherever they can. Some even cross the River Jordan to escape from what they see as certain death. Saul's credit, he remains at the meeting point agreed by Samuel, although the soldiers accompanying him are terrified at how vulnerable to the Philistines they now are. Samuel promised to return here in seven days, but when the appointed time comes, there's no sign of him. 
With his men losing heart and beginning to scatter, Saul makes an executive decision and goes ahead with preparing some ritual sacrifices without the old man. As soon as Saul begins making the offerings, Samuel arrives and is not happy. Saul has disobeyed his orders to wait and has fallen at pretty much the very first hurdle. Saul argues his case. With his men abandoning him, the Philistines regrouping and Samuel a no-show, he felt that he ought to get on God's good side before the battle begins. It may look like strong leadership, but Samuel doesn't mince his words. Saul has been foolish, he says. Had he simply stuck to the rules, his kingdom would have lasted forever. Instead, his dynasty will fall, especially as God has already chosen his successor. Samuel then departs for Gibeah, leaving Saul and his 600 remaining soldiers to reflect on what might have been. It may seem a harsh call, but the message is clear. God's expectations are high, and for a king, they are especially so. When it comes to Israel's monarchy, obedience is a virtue, and Saul has dropped the ball catastrophically. Relatively early on in his reign, it is already the beginning of the end for him and his family. The Philistines remain a powerful threat to Israel, and detachments from their camp attack on three different fronts. The warriors have learned the trade of ironworking from another Canaanite tribe called the Hittites, and the book relates that they have made sure that there are no longer any blacksmiths in Israel. This gives them the monopoly on ironworking, and as a result, the Israelites must now take their farm tools to the Philistine garrison and pay extortionate amounts to have them sharpened. Not only is this humiliating, the complete absence of weaponry means that no one in the Israelite army has a sword or spear, except for Saul and his son Jonathan. Saul's son is nothing like his father. On his own initiative, he and a single companion launch an attack that leads to the defeat of the entire enemy army. Saul is camped out in Gibeah with his 600 soldiers and one priest, a tiny and vulnerable fighting force when compared to the might of the Philistine threat. Possibly believing that attack is the best form of defence, Jonathan steals away with his young armour-bearer on a daring assault on the Philistine garrison. To reach the stronghold, the men must scale a cliff face, but Jonathan remains optimistic about their chances of success. He tells his companion that God may well help them. After all, nothing can stop God winning a battle, regardless of the number of soldiers in the opposing army. Biblically speaking, his theology is sound, and so the two men approach the enemy camp on what ordinarily might have been a suicide mission. Showing how much belief he has in Jonathan as a leader, the servant throws himself into the attack. The men agree that if the Philistines come down to fight, they should stay where they are. If they are invited up to fight, then that will be the sign that God will help them to victory. The men position themselves at the foot of the cliff face in full view of the Philistine army above and shout up at them. The Philistines assume that the cowardly Israelite army has finally crawled out of its caves and holes and anywhere else it was hiding. They goad the men to come up to be taught a lesson, and so Jonathan and his wingman climb up to be taught that lesson. Jonathan and his armour-bearer are clearly capable warriors, and before long, twenty Philistines lie dead. 
The book describes how God makes the ground shake and invokes panic in the Philistine camp. The rest of the enemy soldiers run off in terror, spooking the wider army who collectively lose the plot. From their vantage point back in Gibeah, Saul's lookout see the Philistine soldiers scatter. Assuming that some of his men must be responsible, the king demands a headcount, at which point he realises that his son and an armour-bearer are missing. Saul is in a difficult situation. Does he stay in his relatively secure position across a valley from the enemy with his tiny army, or does he take advantage of Philistines in disarray and chase after them? He summons his priest and tells him to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred wooden gold box that holds the stone tablets on which are inscribed the Ten Commandments, and which is believed to be the earthly resting place of God. This seems like an anomaly. Why would the Ark be moved from its current home just inside the border of Israel, where it has been stored since its return from Philistine ownership? According to the Bible, it remains here until David brings it to Jerusalem. It's probably more likely that the priest brings the Urim and Thummim to help his king decide. These are believed to be sacred rocks which, when rolled, give a yes-no, this one, that one answer. But in the event, the clamour of the fighting is too compelling, and consulting God is moved to a back burner. Saul's priest is a grandson of Phineas, the rogue priest who died after bringing the ark into a previous battle against the Philistines. The sense is that, given his heritage, his role as high priest is no guarantee that God is with him. Saul's army then joins a somewhat surreal battle where he finds Philistines fighting Philistines. Fair-weather Israelites who had previously sided with the Philistines rejoin their teammates and those Israelites who fled to the hills and have heard that the tide has turned come back to inflict a humiliating defeat on their enemy. The battle against the Philistines at Michmash is a resounding victory for Israel and a high that only Saul can ruin. For reasons only he can know, Saul places a curse on any man who eats before victory against the Philistines is complete. Fighting is exhausting work and it's not surprising that in ancient warfare soldiers often eat when the opportunity presents itself. Jonathan doesn't get the message that eating is forbidden and helps himself to some wild honeycomb as the army passes through an area of woodland. The honeycomb is described as oozing out of the ground. In an age before hives, wild bees form large combs on trees which then drip onto the forest floor beneath. When another soldier points out his error, Jonathan is angry with his father and suggests that even more Philistines might have been killed had the Israelite army not been so needlessly hamstrung. Once victory is complete, the men are so ravenous that they kill every animal they can lay hands on, ignoring any Jewish food laws that mean they must wait for the blood to drain away properly. Saul is unhappy with what his men have done, demands that his soldiers bring their animals for a sacrifice and builds his first ever altar to God, announcing that every last Philistine must die. The men are fully behind the move, but Abijah, the priest, puts the brakes on, suggesting that they had better ask God what his plan is first. When God doesn't answer, Saul assumes that it must be because someone has sinned. He decides to draw lots, eliminating his men until the only two who remain suspects are himself and his son. 
The culprit is obviously Jonathan, who admits to eating honey and accepts that he must now pay for this crime with his life. The rest of the army has thus far fallen in line with Saul's orders, but now decides to make a stand. They couldn't have won the battle without Jonathan, the soldiers tell their king. God must have been behind this victory and Jonathan must not die. Possibly fearing a mutiny, Saul backs down. The episode puts a needless dark cloud on an emphatic victory and a brilliant piece of initiative by an idiot king's brave and forward-thinking son shows how rudderless Saul is as Israel's leader. The skirmish is known as the Battle of Michmash and proves to be pivotal as the Philistines now retreat back to their own country. Saul continues to be successful in his attacks on Israel's foreign neighbours, inflicting defeat on Ammon, Moab, Edom and many others, reclaiming all the territory that Israel's enemies stole from it. The book then takes a short detour to introduce readers to Saul's family. At the time, he has a wife, three sons and two daughters. Jonathan isn't the only warrior in the family, it appears. Saul's cousin Abner is put in charge of Israel's army. The Philistines may have temporarily been subdued, but they remain a constant threat throughout Saul's time as king. For this reason, whenever he spots a large or brave man, he seconds him to the army. This period marked the golden age of Saul, if such a poor king can have a golden age. From here on in, it's a downward plummet. Samuel, who believed his work was done, is forced out of retirement to find Israel a king who might actually live up to the job description. The man who he finds is such an epic ruler that his face is featured as the king of spades on most standard packs of playing cards available today. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can, if you wish, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, please do tell people. And I'd love it if you could give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you. Thank you.